Hello, everybody. This is Charlie, and this is podcast number 22 of To Hell and Back. Uh, It's Wednesday. It's June 20th. It's 2018, and it's 4 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, uh, where I am in Massachusetts. And uh, I hope that... uh, I hope that you can settle back and and listen to this and find it um, in some way useful for you. Um, Of course, sort of come to what feels like a juncture in these podcasts because um, there's been 21 of them, and I looked back on them and I realized that, you know, of these first 21, for about 10 of them, I talked uh, myself, just me, for the whole hour about the use of various principles and skills of DBT. I would say reflecting the mindfulness component of DBT more than anything else, though that will be changing in the future, um, as ways to cope with surviving uh, difficult circumstances and getting through the hell of our own lives. Um, And in the other 11, uh, if you break them down, I spoke with four guests, um, each of which either for two or three uh, weeks, I spoke with Domingo Marquez from Puerto Rico first, who told us about his experience of Hurricane Maria, this devastating storm in September, last September, which devastated the infrastructures of Puerto Rico and killed a huge number of citizens, a number number that was um, drastically underreported before and overlooked until recently. And Domingo gave us examples of a multitude of skillful behaviors that helped him and other people there survive, including many examples of coping ahead, including with his own young children. Um, Cedar Coons shared her highly personal story about losing her own sister to suicide a couple of years ago. She gave us really moving examples of what this did to her and how she used mindfulness in particular over and over again, being a mindfulness teacher herself as well, and relying on a social support system that was very solid and and on sticking to the concrete tasks that faced her doing one thing after another. She had to handle a very difficult family situation and take over the care of, of two disabled adults who were her sister's children. And through it all, she arrived at a remarkable level of acceptance of what had happened. Um, then Melanie Harned spoke three times with me, and she didn't share a personal tragedy, but talked with us about her development of the prolonged exposure protocol that's used within DBT to treat individuals with PTSD and borderline personality disorder. Um, she shared research, clinical experience, personal wisdom, and lots of observations about trauma, uh, about preventing PTSD after trauma occurs, about how to treat PTSD and what are the sort of active ingredients of the treatment, and ultimately left us with a ton of suggestions about coping with trauma in our own lives, even outside of treatment. Now, in the past three podcasts, if any of you have listened, you know all of this, but I have spoken with, uh, uh, but for me, I'm partly doing this so that you know where this all came from and that that we're approaching a juncture and that actually if you didn't know about some of these, it'll alert you. In the last three podcasts, I've spoken with Natalia Garcia, who's a psychology grad student in Seattle, whose special interests have already been in trauma and PTSD. 
uh, and who was trained in Linehan's lab in DBT and who herself went through her own terrible traumatic event uh, last September, and it was coincidentally on the same day as Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. She and her husband went in to wake up their healthy two-year-old boy, Jackson, who was sleeping in, they thought, only to find that he had died during the night uh, for reasons that were not at all clear. Uh, she was very generous in telling her story, in sharing her experiences of grief and shock, and talking with us about the ways that she has coped from then until now. And this included really important ways that she approached things that she felt like avoiding, um, the way she shaped her own social support network, including a letter to her mama friends, as she called it, so that they could all stay involved with her and help to support her, giving them essentially instructions on, on uh, recommending that they stay involved with her and that they feel comfortable enough to talk to her about it all. Um, she talked about how she and her husband navigated the sometimes treacherous waters that they can be of maintaining a good marriage after such a trauma and, and how she's moved on to turn her suffering into a really far-reaching and meaningful compassion project in a way that really very movingly keeps her son Jackson alive uh, every time someone participates. Um, now, a theme, as I look back on these, that has woven its way through all four stories is the absolute critical importance of approaching rather than avoiding the traumatic memories, of approaching rather than avoiding the cues, um, the triggers, you might say, the things that are associated with the traumatic event, and leaning into those situations and those memories rather than backpedaling and hiding from them. I want to now add in this light a, a, a story of my own. This isn't a story of trauma, but it sort of clarifies this a bit for me. It made a big difference to me. And it's a story of my own that brought home the same theme to me pretty much exactly. I didn't quite see it coming, but it irreversibly affected me. Um, many years ago, I was in Washington, D.C. at an annual conference of the American Psychological Association. I was presenting a paper there in and it was a paper, as I recall it, that was uh, related to um, hypotheses about the experiences of deep grief in an infant in response to separation um, and how that can result in some long-standing serious problems with attachment that don't become very obvious at first. And I was supposed to talk at about 9 a.m. All night long, I tried to write my talk. I had lots of notes. I had lots of ideas. And yet I had not put together a talk yet that I did not despise. Uh, I had lost a lot of sleep heading into the conference, having been so anxious about this talk, and compulsively writing it and rewriting it until I had made myself sick. In fact, that night before the talk, I had a terrible migraine, which I had, I had a series of migraines all night long, that wouldn't respond to medication. I just turned off the lights. I kept a cold wash rag on my forehead. My wife was there with me in the hotel and she kept getting it cold again and wet. I just tried to endure and I tried to think. I tried to write things, got increasingly panicky. I was supposed to talk at nine in the morning. And by seven in the morning, 
uh, for some reason, the migraine was, was receding enough that I could just sit up at my computer and knowing I had less than two hours, I just typed out the talk from beginning to end and uh, figured, okay, I don't have to review it and, and hate it. So at 9 o'clock, I went and delivered it, and to lots of positive responses, um, as usual, actually, because this was a pattern I had had for years, and I couldn't break it. I felt that the audience uh, would reinforce my compulsive over-preparation activity, you know, by saying, oh, what a good talk, and I go away thinking, yeah, well, that's because I worked so hard on it and made myself sick. But I also was in treatment, in uh, psychoanalytic treatment at the time as part of being in psychoanalytic training and talked about it and just decided this is too much. You know, I've got to do something. And um, somebody recommended a behaviorist in New York City. I had actually seen him before for a different problem that I may have mentioned in these podcasts about writing um, publishable papers. And I went to him to seek help for the terrible anxiety and this preparation problem. Um, and, and long story short, he had me agree to line up my next six talks, which were pretty much all scheduled already over the next three or four months, in whatever settings they came, and beginning with the first one, being allowed two and a half hours of preparation, and then two hours for the second one, and for each subsequent talk going down another half hour until on the last one I would deliver with no preparation at all. The whole thing felt like hell most of the way through, like, oh, my God, this is a crazy thing I am doing, um, and very hard. It made me very anxious. Um, the behaviorist said, well, of course you are. Um, you still, if you're going to defeat this, you have to go through it. So um, it was, though I have to say now, it was probably no more hellish than what I already went through. Something interesting that Melanie Harned said when she was talking is that people say, I don't know if I can do this kind of exposure to my memories of trauma, but then it turns out for most of those people who have PTSD, those memories of trauma are coming at them every day in different ways anyway. Anyway, I went into each talk with fear and in a way more and more naked in terms of preparation each time and came out the other side of each talk getting, you know, reasonably positive input. I noticed by that time, by the time I had done three or four that I kept going. I noticed that I hadn't died. I noticed that nobody had slammed me terribly. In fact, I had noticed that nothing terrible had happened other than just lots of energy output. By the sixth talk, my last one, um, I was actually more relaxed than I had been for the others, even though I had no preparation. And it was my first talk ever, actually, about having developed an inpatient DBT program and I delivered it at an international symposium to about 150 people. Um, and I somehow got the idea as I got up there more relaxed than usual that, oh, well, um, I know what I did to develop inpatient DBT. I know the story. Actually, no one else knows it like me. I should just stand up and tell the story. I should just talk about what I did. And that's what I did. And it went very well. And I felt this sense of freedom in talking in front of people that was totally brand new for me in terms of talking in front of people. And it was the turning point, I'd say, in my whole life of talking in front of people, which obviously has become a big deal for me, teaching workshops, this podcast even. And it was because, I'm sure, that I went into what I was afraid of, that I kept my eyes open, that I kept my mind open, that I realized my incredible fear, but I kept going. 
And I found, ultimately, there was nothing to be so afraid of, and it was probably the only way my brain could have learned that. And so I learned for the first time that doing this with no prep would not only not kill me, it even might be a little bit fun. And it really was never the same after that. All right, I want to say something about um, a related but different topic. Consider um, clouds for a moment. I know it sounds pretty different, but believe me, just hang in there. Um, We look up at the sky, and we see sometimes a big, dark cloud. And it looks rather foreboding and fixed. And it moves slowly across the sky, and it has a certain shape, and it has what looks like a certain density. It appears very solid. And uh, we think, oh, no. And we say to ourselves, "Uh uh-oh, there's a big, dark cloud up there. Now, our perception of the cloud when we see that is that it is big, that it's dark, that it's solid, fixed, dense. And our feelings might include fear or even dread, depending on our past experiences of storms and clouds. And our thoughts might include predictions of doom and gloom. Uh, It could influence decisions we make. And generally, it might add on to other things in our life that we have found foreboding and frightening. And so it can be a kind of a heavy, loaded experience. But if we go to the cloud, if we go right at the cloud, as we do when we fly in an airplane, and we go through the cloud from one side to the other, we learn there is no such thing as a cloud. At least there's no such thing as a cloud in the way we were thinking about it as a cloud. There is no cloudness within the cloud. There is no cloud self, you might say. Well, so what is it? Well, it's a collection of water droplets that form on the window of the airplane when you go through. It's a collection of mist. It has some, some, maybe some tiny particles of various kinds that have gotten caught up in the constellation of the cloud, and it may have some electrical charges in it, and it's a certain temperature, it's a certain density, but there's also a lot of space in between the droplets and the particles. In other words, it's not at all the big, heavy, solid, frightening thing that it seemed to be. The cloud is made up entirely of ordinary things, of non-scary things, of universal things. It's not made up of any cloud essence, and it's a revelation to realize this and to go into it and through it and have nothing bad happen, sort of like the talking without preparation. The scariness, in other words, is not in the cloud. It's in the cloud in our mind. It's in the cloud that has formed in our mind, and the cloud does not kill us. And the cloud does not destroy us. It's mainly water in whatever form it's in and the location it's in because of the causes and the conditions in our overall climate. The cloud is just a formation, is a configuration of elements. And it is not what it appears to be from afar. hate to be sounding like I'm just drumming this point through you because it probably sounds pretty stupid by now, but... To me, it's sort of a revelation when I connect it with other things. And by the way, just as a little moment, as you know, I'm I'm given to musical interludes. I was thinking when I thought about this, about Joni Mitchell's song, Both Sides Now. So I'm going to sing the, the few lines. It just makes me think, yeah, this woman was really prescient. She was really a smart poet. Um, here's how it goes. I've looked at clouds from both sides now. 
from up and down, and still somehow its clouds illusions I recall. I really don't know clouds at all. Well, you might ask, who cares about clouds? You know, we're not meteorologists, we're not pilots, we're not parachuters, most of us. You know, maybe golfers care, but to some degree we all care. Um, but here's why I link it here. What I have said about clouds can be said about literally anything that enters into our perceptions, that enters into our thoughts and our feelings. In fact, everything that we see, that we feel, everything has a certain configuration or formation to it, and it is made up not of itself. And that's really this concept of selflessness in Buddhism. Um, the talks I had with Domingo and Cedar and Melanie and Natalia all spoke about traumatic events, how trauma affects us, how trauma shapes our subsequent experience, our perceptions. Trauma shapes our thoughts, our emotions, our actions, decisions. That shapes our relationships. Melanie and then Natalia told us that in the vast majority of cases, something like 80%, people who undergo traumatic incidents do not end up with PTSD. I think it was a higher percent. They process it or digest it in, the daily, in their daily lives, and they move on with their lives, usually within three to six months. Now, you might think that each form of trauma, or I might think, that each of these descents into hell and life would generate a black cloud that was fixed, that was large, nearly permanent, that was dense, followed us around, and was possibly dangerous to us. Each incident of trauma, you might think, would leave us feeling vulnerable to another one, feeling incompetent about protecting ourselves, feeling that the world is a dangerous and frightening place, and the best strategy would be to do everything possible to avoid a repeat. But that is not what happens most of the time. It is not what happened to some of the guests I spoke with. Most of the time, these reactions are temporary. And then in some, PTSD does develop. And you might say that in these cases, there is a large dark cloud of PTSD made up of thoughts and emotional responses and actions that continue to dog the person. Now, each of the people who joined me, each in his or her own way, told stories of taking on the traumatic incident, going into it rather than away from it, going into the fire, slaying the dragon, whatever metaphor you want, as I, just as I had gone into public speaking without preparation, and as we go into clouds, even if they look scary from down below. And these choices we make after a trauma prove to be crucial, perhaps the most crucial. Thrown from the horse, we get back on, right? Frightened of our closet. In our dark bedroom, we turn the light on and go there and look around in it. Oh, frightened that people are not going to like us if we go to a certain social event. If we want to increase our freedom and our comfort and lower our anxiety, we go there. We take ourselves to the social event and we enter into it and we look at other people. We make eye contact. We socialize. We go all the way in, in a way that Linehan has talked elegantly about in working with social anxiety uh, with the skill of acting opposite. Whatever tools we use, and there's a lot of them, and we'll cover more in other podcasts, 
this kind of experience of going directly at it, going down the middle, safely but steadfastly and bravely is a core practice if we want to take it on and get through it. These dark clouds, while they're understandably frightening and upsetting, they're made up, like the real dark clouds, of ordinary and universal ingredients for all of us. Thoughts, they're made up of expectations, of memories, reminders of things, fears, certain features of the environment. In other words, these are all ordinary things that fall together in a constellation that frightens us. And they stand in front of us looking forbidding. And if we move safely and steadily into them, moving at them, holding them in mind long enough, paying attention, tolerating our own emotional responses so that no corner is left unexplored or unexpressed, we will enhance our recovery. If you don't believe it, just think back on times in your life that you have done this or the lives of people you know, or go back and listen to how Cedar came to grips with her sister's suicide, which could have been a dark cloud forever, or how Natalia began to recover from the loss of her child, one of the scariest traumas people ever imagine, and how Domingo moved forward after the hurricane. Okay, so look, that is the end for those of you who endured through it thinking, oh God, would he just shut up? That's the end of my rambling reflection about this. It's really just to put a cap on what I thought was the most prominent theme of these first four rounds, and, uh, and, and I'll be moving on to other things. But I want to let you know to be, feel free to contact me by, by, through my website, um, charlieswenson.com, uh, my email, uh, c.robert.swenson at gmail, uh, to give me any feedback or to ask me any questions to address about this or to make any suggestions to me or anything. Because now I'm going to shift gears. Um, now I want to do something else. It's related to the same topic of hell in life. It's related to how to get through. Uh, and it's a personal story uh, from me. Um, and so what I want to do is tell you a story. It's mostly written. but So read you a story slash tell you a story about my best friend, Cindy, from many years ago. Literally, she died in 2003 of breast cancer, 11 years after her diagnosis at the tender age of 49. Um, I began to write this a few years after she died. I was still so sad, uh, even though I was very functional, I just kept being sad and it would come up in bursts. And I would, in fact, burst into tears while I was teaching intensive workshops which in the past, when she was alive, I had mainly done with her. Um, so, uh, here goes. Um, can't think if there's anything else I'd want to tell you about it. It probably takes me 20 or 25 minutes, I would guess, to go through it. Um, and we'll see if there's anything else comes up during it to comment on. Um, so here goes what would be, might become, chapter one, if this, if this were something I proceeded to make into a book. And if so, it might have the title, titles I've thought of, is one would be the radio show in heaven, and the other one uh, called No Dead Ends. So, um, settle in. the <laughs> story time here. Cindy had this way of making odd 
little faces. Suddenly, briefly, in the middle of a serious conversation, looking all the while straight into my eyes, as if time stopped and her impish, otherworldly self peeked into our moment together. Only she could create the sense in one second that she had been staring at me for an hour. She had such a cute face, not beautiful, cute. It was small, rounded at the top, and pointy at the bottom. Her hair was straight, nearly black, scrubbed, shiny, usually short and boyish. Her eyes were round and very noticeably brown. And in spite of her constant mental movement, her gaze was steady. Sometimes Cindy looked to me like a hungry refugee child pleading to be picked up and held. To her dismay, she had a button nose, dead center on her face, which for the rest of us was charming. Sometimes, and this could happen in almost any situation, such as being at dinner with her or teaching with her, her fingers would cross into my visual field. If it was at dinner, they would come up from under the table. Covered with little finger puppets of different colors and different expressions. Nothing to be said about it. No matter what was going on between us, her sudden odd little faces, as annoying as they might be, broke any tension and put things in perspective. Her E.T. face, with eyebrows arched, her head slowly bobbing back and forth, an enigmatic smile on her lips, conveyed an awareness that her relatives were far away on a distant planet which would then remind me that mine were also. And she searched for those lost relatives in me, and I searched for mine in her. And we found them. We both found them. We found more than that. We each located a twin in the other, a replica in another gender. Sometimes we talked about being twins, it was surreal to the end, beyond the end. I met Cindy when I was the director of a prestigious long-term inpatient psychotherapy program for individuals with borderline personality disorder. Emotionally sensitive and reactive people whose emotions and thoughts brought them much suffering and whose self-destructive behavior was also hard on those around them. I was a young psychiatrist and perhaps a bit too informal in style for the rather precise and controlled therapeutic community environment I was invited to lead, in which, quote, boundaries, unquote, were sacred. Cindy was a psychology PhD student, at first a predoctoral intern and then a postdoctoral fellow in our program. I directed this program with 23 patients each of whom stayed with us for an average of one and a half years, and another 35 staff members and psychotherapists. Cindy was one of many. I knew at the time that I was well-respected by the staff, 
And I learned later, I never noticed the cues at the time, that I actually was loved by some. Still, I felt lonely among many. I wanted a friend, I wanted a buddy, and I was on the search. As my own search strategy that year, the first of Cindy's two years in training with us, I bought myself two tickets to the New York Knicks basketball games at Madison Square Garden. Knowing that I hated to waste money, I knew I would do everything possible every week to find someone to take the other ticket and go with me to the games. Each week, as our all-staff meeting drew to a close and just before everyone left the room, I would quickly and casually announce that, hey, I have an extra ticket to the next two Knicks games and wondered if anyone would like to go. Every time, from the first time, every single time, as if she had no other life obligations, Cindy would shyly but quickly raise her hand and say she would go. So she came with me nearly every week to nearly every game for several seasons. From White Plains, we would drive down the West Side Highway into Manhattan, head over to Madison Square Garden, get a burger across the street at Applebee's, bop into the garden as sports fan twins. It was a dream come true. We talked all the way down, all the way back, often in a traffic jam, and therefore for hours. We screamed during the games and talked basketball strategy in a self-congratulatory dyadic bubble. It was so satisfying to be the two best basketball minds among over 10,000 people. Over time, we befriended the other know-it-alls around us. We enjoyed cutting loose and having fun. Every game was crucial, and every game did not matter at all. We were fortunate to watch Michael Jordan as he ascended to his uncontestable heights when the Chicago Bulls came to town. And well before the world knew of bad boy Dennis Rodman, the pierced and tattooed shocking ambassador to North Korea, when he was just coming into his own as the best rebounding forward in NBA history, Cindy loved, and I mean really, really loved, Dennis Rodman's amazing legs when the Knicks played the Detroit Pistons. She swooned when she saw his legs. I might as well have been 100 miles away. So it was after maybe two months of our first Knicks year together, having by then spent more than 50 captive hours talking in the car and at the arena, that when we were driving back to Westchester County one night in back-to-back traffic, it occurred to me that I knew nothing, absolutely nothing, about Cindy's private life. She knew all about mine, that I lived with my wife Meredith and our two dogs on the beautiful grounds of the hospital, that I had been married before and then had had a girlfriend in New Haven, Connecticut, that I played golf and I basketball and tennis in my spare time, and so on. But I knew nothing, absolutely nothing, about her personal life. Cindy was, I realized, an unbelievably private person. Her persona at work was that of a bright, 
appealing young woman graduate student, winning boatloads of praise and attention for her work, perpetually in search for the right boyfriend, joining a cohort of young professional women, picking over the annual crop of attractive young men that entered our training hospital. So in the space of that drive that night, I asked her, Hey, Cindy, you know, you know all about where I live. You know who I live with. You know what I do in my spare time, all that stuff. I mean, and I just realized I don't know a thing about your personal life, which is really weird after all this time. What is up with you? What's your situation? Chuck, I'm a pretty private person. I've always been that way. Well, I understand that. I mean, I respect that, but it feels more and more unbalanced between us. And like we've become really good friends. I mean, do you know that we're good friends? Duh. Well, do you think you could be a little less private? Chuck, there's really not much to say. What if I get more specific? I mean, where do you live? Do you live alone? Do you have roommates? I mean, do you have a boyfriend? Long, long pause. Look, Charlie, I really don't like to get into those things. She was now all out serious, no cute, odd faces. She was touchy, uncomfortable, defensive. The polite thing for me to do would have been to back off. But I was sick of the imbalance and of her evasiveness in spite of our togetherness. Come on, Cindy, what have you got to hide? As I said that, it suddenly occurred to me that she might be gay, but I didn't say it. Who do you live with? Where do you live? Chuck, I live in Terrytown. Is that all right? Yeah. Pause. But, like, who do you live with? Pause. Well, let's say this. I live with a lesbian. Is that enough for you? Can you drop it now? Do you mean you live with a lesbian who's your roommate? Or is it more than that? This was incredibly awkward. Have you lived with her for a long time? No. I mean, yes. Yes, I mean, yes. I have lived with a lesbian for a long time. The same lesbian for a long time? Now she's angry. Yeah, pretty much the same lesbian for a fucking long time, all right? But I did live with others before that. Other lesbians? Pretty much. I couldn't push any further. It just didn't feel right. I had forced open the door, a steel-reinforced door, and I just couldn't make the final push. I left it at that. I left the door ajar. I told her I was glad to have learned something about her. She had lived with a lesbian, one lesbian, for a long time. I did learn more little by little. Cindy was indeed private and evasive. As I learned later, in addition to having a shy temperament, she was always protecting her reputation in our homophobic work environment. She was incredibly smart, quick, and very funny. Late-night stand-up comedian funny. It was a potent combination of rigor and riot. When her fellowship ended, I hired her to help me develop an inpatient DBT program. We continued to watch basketball together, to have dinners together at Indian restaurants in White Plains, New York, on Thursday nights, 
and we began a mini-career of teaching workshops and seminars together. We continued to notice our twinning tendencies, how we thought, how we taught, what kind of women attracted us, even in how we each maintained remoteness within the relationship with each other. We never became romantically involved, never approached it, a testimony to the enduring lack of sexual chemistry between us. It was strange being so close, so similar, so loyal, so remote together, and still without a moment of sexual chemistry. Lucky us. One day in 1992, during the era that Cindy worked with me on the inpatient unit, she phoned me from the street in New York City, where she had just seen a doctor. She was sobbing, and she could barely speak. She had learned that she had breast cancer of a highly malignant sort, torn loose from herself and from the earth, unable to drive and barely able to walk or talk. She wanted me to come get her. I drove there immediately. Slightly more than 11 years later, after years of surgery, radiation, chemotherapies, an excruciating bone marrow transplant, and after five years of remission, during which her oncologist challenged her to begin imagining the future, after joining her partner, Marcia, to adopt a beautiful little girl from China, after following Meredith and me up to live in western Massachusetts, where she and I hoped to design and deliver a weekly radio program patterned after car talk, but with a focus on psychology. After having taught literally dozens of workshops together all over the United States, and having earned the reputation as the best and funniest training team in DBT, and after having fought and loved and laughed and figured out how to solve all world problems, after all that, when she was 49 and I was 54, I was sitting next to her, holding her hand as she lay in a hospital bed in Springfield, Massachusetts. Her original breast cancer had now returned, three weeks after she moved to western Massachusetts, taking over her bones and then moving up to her one-in-a-million smart, talented, and funny brain. And her eyes were closed, and she was drugged to eliminate the pain. I saw clearly on that Thanksgiving night in 2003 that I might be able to say one more thing that she might be able to hear. But this was hard to say for sure because she was motionless, her eyelids were like heavy blankets, and she appeared to be in a coma. I was holding her hand, and I told her that I loved her. And I told her that our next intensive workshop together was already scheduled. No response whatsoever. Finally, I told her that we were going to do our radio program together in heaven. At that moment, she opened her heavy eyes and tried to move her immovable, crusty lips. And she lifted her eyes to me for the last time. And there was a distinct hit of an attempt, hint of an attempt to make a final, odd, cute little face. 
She smiled ever so faintly with one corner of her mouth, the only corner that could still move. Then she closed her eyes, a smile still on her lips. I could barely stand it, that this odd genius twin of a person, my best friend, was leaving me, was leaving everyone. And I just sat there with her sister, with her partner, with my wife, watching her. She died about two hours later, looking peaceful, having responded to me for the last time. After a few months went by, I thought I should write up the transcripts of the radio show as it would have been. I battled to write the first transcript. I couldn't do it. I had no spirit to do it. I had no confidence that I could write dialogue at all. Doing it without Cindy was like Laurel without Hardy or Click without Clack. Letting go of the radio show was the next step in letting go of Cindy. Losing Cindy as a co-teacher was losing part of myself. I considered retiring from teaching workshops. They seemed so formulaic. What was the point? I was lonely again, and teaching without her made it worse. When we were teaching together, it had flowed. Time had passed without notice. We were sharp. We were funny. I told stories, and she was hysterical. Once when she was teaching about the brain and emotions, she suddenly launched into a 20-minute monologue about cellulite. She had been doing research. Why do women have visible cellulite and men don't? She was angry about it and went on and on about gender inequality based on different bone and muscle structures. She uh, lifted up pants and showed her cellulite on her legs. It was vintage Cindy, Louis C.K. in a woman's body. Cindy was courageous. She brought, as she put it, a what-the-fuck strategy to teaching. Chuck, life is short. If you ever have a wild thought about doing something while you teach, just think, what the fuck, and do it. She taught with courage. She worked hard to find love in the audience, in the material, and in me. And it worked. Our typical evaluations at the end of a workshop gave us very high marks, each of us. And then, beyond that, written on the forms, she would receive proposals of marriage from both genders. We would read that she had transformed people's lives. What was I, I thought, chopped liver? In Sweden, in 2004, about six months after losing her, while I was teaching a series of workshops there, I had the most psychotic experience of my life. As I walked back and forth in front of the audience at an amphitheater in the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, Cindy suddenly emerged from the middle of my chest. I almost couldn't continue to teach. It was as if her upper body broke through my chest wall from the inside and she began saying outrageous things to the audience. I was taken over and I wanted her to leave. What the hell was going on? She was totally screwing up my workshop. I felt like pushing her back down into my chest and telling her to shut up. After a minute or two of uncertainty and confusion, I became quite relaxed and very happy. I thought, oh my God, here she is again. 
she had rejoined me, and we were teaching together again. I realized I am now a composite of me and Cindy. I was a we. I felt bolder. I felt funnier, more spontaneous. I was not lonely. I was teaching with her. I laughed while I taught. I cried while I taught. And together we had the the what-the-fuck attitude. Our hearts were joined, and my voice was joined by her voice. We were flowing again. It occurred to me later that we were, right then, in a way, doing our first radio show. I lost my loneliness as a teacher. There was now a point again. She was resurrected, and we were together. Teaching DBT workshops became way more than teaching DBT workshops. It was being with Cindy. We were doing teaching, good teaching, and outrageous things. And it was different every time. Sometime during every intensive workshop that I taught for years, I would break down in tears, grateful to have her with me, and so sad that I lost her. This is the weirdest thing to be reading this and have nobody here. But um, if you hung in there and listened to all of this, um, you can see... I hope you get a flavor of what she was like because really it's like reviving somebody who was without question the best teacher of DBT that there ever was uh, in terms of putting together uh, brilliant, rigorous teaching with uh, engagement with an audience and with just being hysterically funny. Um, and, uh, And so it's very hard when I even think now this many years later Uh, Oh, my God, I've taught with some wonderful people since then. There's still this kind of like, I think there's there's something when you lose someone who's this special to you, it doesn't really go away. Um, So it's sad, but you go on and you you find the ways and you make meaning out of it. I think that that's what's happened. So what I'm going to do in future uh, podcasts, probably with each of the next few podcasts, I will read uh, one of the chapters of what I've written so far. And they all will be dialogue between me and Cindy because they essentially begin with her being dead, but her making contact with me and, and trying to get me to do the radio show with her finally. And you'll just, you'll have to tune in to find out how, what, how, what happens from that. But um, uh, this obviously was a grief, activity for me uh, to work on to work on the loss of her so this hasn't happened before that I've actually uh, stopped before uh, five o'clock my time but that's what I'm going to do I realize there's no rule that says I have to talk until five o'clock so we're going to stop Um, I other than reading again from this story next time, which will be next Wednesday, I'm not sure what else I'm going to do. I have other ideas in mind of uh, talking about some other skills, talking about some other experiences, and, and interviewing some other people. So if you want to be in touch about anything like that or just anything, you know, please do. And uh, I'm always happy to hear from people. Okay. I hope you have a really good evening. Bye-bye.